You've never tasted desperate. You're, uh, you're Bruce Wayne, the Prince of Gotham. You'd have to go a thousand miles to meet someone who didn't know your name. So don't, don't come down here with your anger, trying to prove something to yourself. This is a world you never understand, and you always fear what you don't understand. And welcome to Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm your other co-host, Jake Harris. And tonight we are discussing everything Batman Begins. The big money film. Yes, his big, big studio franchise. So much funding that they were able to pay for the rights to Happy Birthday. That's how big this is now. <laughs> <laughs> For a minute, I thought I was like, was that the code name that he used to film it? But then, no, that was just a they, bigger, they literally, than, bigger yeah. than God joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, yeah. He, uh, he went from insomnia to this, uh, and they trusted him. They just handed him the keys to the, the DC comic studio for a minute. And, uh, well, we'll get into that, but we basically have everything about comics that came after it to thank and or blame for this movie. <laughs> So yeah, Schro- Schrodinger's um, movie trends. Yeah, I suppose you could say. Yeah, but before we get to all that, do we have any Nolan things in the news? As with last time, the news cycle for Nolan is is rolling. Oh God, Nolan, sorry about rolling, that. Intention. Rolling with rolling with Nolan. Oh yeah. no, uh, I, I didn't. Yeah. I swore I wouldn't do that, but I I did it. Oh well. Uh, if anyone here is uh, went to TCU from the years of 2010 to 2014, have fun with that joke. Um, <laughs> anyway, again, like a lot of the last uh, news events and news stories that we have found for this podcast in the past couple of weeks, it's not really Christopher Nolan himself making the news, but it's stuff surrounding the movies that he's making. And so right now it's Oppenheimer, which we've been pronouncing this wrong the whole time I found out today. It's Oppenheimer, not Oppenheimer. So we will say it that way going forward. But this story broke actually right after we did our trailer review for Oppenheimer last week. But the Biden administration is now reversing a 1954 decision where Oppenheimer's security clearance was revoked and ended his career as a physicist after he started protesting the amount of power that the atomic bomb would have um, after he created it and we used it in World War II. Um, And also during, uh, you know, the height of HUAC and anti-communism in the 50s, uh, he was placed on the blacklist for communist ties. And so he also, as a result of this, uh, he got his security clearance restored posthumously and his name was taken off the blacklist. So all of that as speeding up in advance of the movie's release, uh, renewed interest in his life and his work and his legacy. And so old Uncle Joe is uh, trying to set it right here uh, <laughs> for a minute before the movie comes out. Yeah, and the NPR article that that I found, that I read about it, one of the co-authors of the Oppenheimer biography was quoted and saying, good, basically, oh, yeah. that this got reversed. It was Kai a, Bird, yeah. Yeah, Kai Bird said the 94 was a travesty. A black mark on the honor of the nation. So a, a kangaroo court. Yeah. I love that phrase. It's so fun. Uh <laughs> Matt, well, we'll, kangaroo we'll, court. we'll see a kangaroo court in a known film uh, very soon. 
relatively soon. Yeah. Um, but that's not I saw in yours, is that, do you think that the, I haven't seen any speculation about the black and white versus color aspects of it, but I have, I think I saw in your notes, is it going to be like, are they going to do those courtroom scenes like in black and white? And then the present day stuff is in color. Or how do you, what are your thoughts on that? How do you yeah, think that's going to happen? So a little bit of follow up on our Oppenheimer trailer thoughts. I saw a thing on, before I saw this Reddit post, I was thinking, well, maybe they'll do the black and white scenes kind of instead of with Memento as the flash. Right. Sequences. Right. Maybe they're going to cut ahead to the black and white being his hearing or something. And apparently, according mm-hmm. to the Reddit post that we'll link in the notes, says that Christopher Nolan says that Oppenheimer film will have black and white versus color. It's a trick here, but it you know the just the the use of it that he did with Memento, apparently quoting all this saying, "I'd always been looking for a reason to go back to that." So, yep. given that we're referencing Memento here, moving up and down a timeline, it seems reasonable right. to think it might be specifically reserved for a certain section of time in the film. Yeah, I wonder if he's trying to do a play on, I mean, obviously we're all speculating here, but I wonder if that's going to be like a play on his binary, like good, evil, right, wrong thing with having black and white be in a courtroom proceeding, not only just as a a flashback or flash forward or time element or whatever, but maybe he's doing that as a way to comment on the the murky gray area in between, maybe, possibly. I don't know, mm, but we'll see. Yeah, That'll be good to keep a lookout for. I feel like I heard you mention this idea. I can't even remember now if it was when we were off mic or not, but you said something. I I swear it was you said something about maybe (laughs) like with the bomb going off, it'll take all the color out of the world and they'll switch to black and white during that. Oh, I did not think of that. That was not my statement, but that is a really good idea. Have you seen, um, Oh, what is it? Pleasantville? Have you seen that movie? feel like I've seen good chunks of it, but not all the way through, but I know the conceit generally. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Well, it, <laughs> the color doesn't start to come into the world until I think the first act that does it is Joan Allen masturbates in a bathtub and then it, <laughs> the color comes back. I think there might've been like a kiss or something like slightly right uh, more illicit in the world before then. But then that's like the thing that makes like, a red rose grows on a tree outside afterwards. So it's very on the nose, but the black and white going into color conceit is always fun. I mean, obviously it's like a history of the medium from wizard of Oz onward. But yeah. Yeah. The other things with possible color. Yeah. With Oppenheimer was, I kind of went down a rabbit hole after watching the trailer several times. And I saw through the Wikipedia article of the Trinity test, some contemporary accounts of, what people described it as being and there's like a purple sky like the ionization of the atmosphere and a bunch of different colors the sky changed in very quick sequence so that's going to be quite the visual smorgasbord if if no one can even like picturing halfway recreate like interstellar level type stuff yeah probably yeah so that'll be interesting hearing you practically recreated the test instead of with just cgi i'm very curious to see if he gets all the colors too now, because it sounds apart from the whole nuclear bomb death and destruction 
means of our own destruction now being created. Yeah. The actual physical visual light show of it sounds pretty neat. <laughs> yeah, we can safely watch it from our homes instead of having to actually deal with death and destruction. Maybe he'll comment on that too. I don't know. We'll see. But it's a, sure. It's been a, yeah. <laughs> and the only other thing I have that's even somewhat tangentially related to anything is inspired by the documentary about Abbey Road Studios that's on Disney Plus right now called If These Walls Could Sing. Now, I haven't watched it. My mom brought this to my attention, actually. And I told her I would watch at least the first 10 minutes, but, you know, life, so busy. Sorry, Mom. Right, but she told right. me that within the first 10 minutes, they talk about how EMI opened the studios. And the first recording session at Abbey Road Studios was Edward Elgar, who composed the variations, one of which is used very prominently yeah, yeah, in yeah. Dunkirk. So mm-hmm. that was pretty neat to hear. That's cool. Yeah. I need to, is that the one that it's McCartney's granddaughter? Yeah. Ma- Mary McCartney. Yeah. I think some, something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I really like get back. Uh, yeah. That one was a lot of fun. I didn't know that they had released this one so soon. So that one looks pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And besides those things, what are you reading or watching in your free time? Your copious amounts of free time copious amounts of reach um this is the last episode that we're recording of 2022 so this is uh i've been watching a lot of holiday stuff a lot of christmas movies all the the old standbys as we do Uh, but the yeah but the two new things that i saw was some friends of ours had extra tickets to go see six when it came the touring cast came through dallas uh through dallas broadway last sunday which feels like an eternity ago but <laughs> I knew the the general conceit about it going in. It's it's told from the perspective of Henry VIII's six wives, and so basically the they form a girl group, and they're putting, you know how like normally Broadway is like you can't clap, you can't sing along, you're supposed to be silent, you're supposed to watch everything as it unfolds. They right. completely abandon that, and the way that they position the show is it's as if the characters themselves are in a girl group performing a concert for the audience so like when they came out they were like what's up Dallas?" like they do it for every city that they come to um right and basically the the game that they're trying to play is each one of them gets their own song to basically tell how messed up their life was when they were married to henry the eighth obviously it was a lot to hamilton it was a lot to not quite jukebox musicals but it's uh it's a lot of rock and pop infused type songs and it's short. There's no intermission. It's like 90 minutes long, but it was a lot of fun. Um, I've been listening to the soundtrack ever since we got out of that. And so if you want to find that out, the live version on Spotify is really cool because it has all of the interstitial dialogue in between the songs. Mm-hmm. And you get the live theater concert experience because it's like you're actually going to a concert and a show at the same time. But it was pretty cool. I have just one question about that. Do hmm. they use Herman's Hermit's Henry VIII song? Uh, which one is that again? Oh, that was supposed to be a joke. Is that the, uh, oh, is it, is that the Herman's is Herman's I'm, the, Henry, I'm Henry the Eighth. I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, okay. they do, but they do. They do an interpolation of uh, of green sleeves at the beginning, mm-hmm. and so I was like, "Oh, I know this," but but in my head, I was thinking, "I was like, Christ the King." Oh the my god! <laughs> yeah, because it's Christmas time, but. 
Um, well, <laughs> no, that, it's a, it's a, that's a lot of fun. That reference for me failed spectacularly. I'm going to completely cut that out and no evidence, uh, evidence no, of it will exist. I think <laughs> I was like, I think I know what you're talking about, but I can't remember, but they did not have that. And then the other thing I saw was, uh, I have been avatar pilled. Uh, I liked the first, <laughs> I liked the first movie. I thought it looked great, but we lived overseas at the time and, I did not have the time or the money to go off base to go watch it in actual 3D. So I saw it in regular old two dimensions in the theater that was on base where we lived. And I liked it even with that. It was fine. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. And then this one, I managed to go see a 3D showing of the new one. And it was amazing. There's like a whole hour of this movie where they are visiting a water tribe of people on the planet on Pandora. And it's just like, I love any of that. Like, give me three hours of that and I would be totally fine. They're talking to space whales. They're like looking at exotic coral reefs, like learning to swim underwater, all this stuff. It was amazing. And it's just like, that's the whole second act. It's just water stuff. It's amazing. But it all builds to a pretty cool action-packed third act. I liked it a lot. And I'm trying to find a way to go see it in IMAX 3D at some point before it leaves theaters, which I don't think it's going to leave theaters anytime soon because it's close to making a billion dollars worldwide right now. So James Cameron did it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's a lot of fun and it's great. And it's refreshing because it's it's so earnest. Like it's just, it doesn't, there's none of the like quippy mcu humor jokes or anything like that like it takes itself seriously but like in a way that like i don't know i guess batman begins takes itself seriously you know like it's Mm -hmm. there's fun moments in it but it's also like this is like it knows what movie it is and it's it's really fun i had a lot of fun with it right right i still have not seen the first avatar because when it came out i was in my early first two years of college and i was yeah snobby college student hipster and i was like Ugh, 3d is such a gimmick james cameron is just a technical wizard this i'm gonna wait for this <laughs> to come out and i still haven't seen it and i'm not like that anymore but i mean i'm still not convinced well, by 3d but i uh <laughs> I i'm not to i'm not it. either yeah. and that one i think because that one kind of set off the wave of all of those movies like in the five years or so afterwards where like Everyone was like, oh, we've got to have 3D because that's what made Avatar yeah. make $2 billion or whatever at the box office. No, it was because he had like a cool new world and he was like not afraid to be like really sincere about it. Yeah. But because yeah. um, also like my eyes are terrible. Um, <laughs> my astigmatisms have astigmatism. Uh, and I was like, I don't know if this is even going to work. I'm sitting there in the dark with like two pairs of glasses on, you know, I got the 3d glasses over my actual glasses and it was like, it was great. It's at one point I thought a fly was hitting my nose and was going to get me. And it was because it was, it was just so realistic because it was coming from the screen. Yeah. And it doesn't do it for like everything. You know, it picks its moments like there's like at one point, like an arrow flies off the screen and it looks like it's going to shoot you and stuff like it's, a, I don't know, it's, it uses it to enhance it. So it is a lot of technical wizardry, but it's, yeah. it's pretty cool. Yeah, well, good. I mean, I've been wondering about that and I guess I'll eventually see them and maybe try to eventually find a maybe a rerun of when they get. Yeah, the, we'll the first one's on Disney Plus if you want to take a yeah, look at it. Yeah, but maybe eventually see them both in 3D someday someday 
Oh, I'm sure he'll re-release it at some point. Of they re-released the first one again in advance of this, so I'm sure he's going to be like, let's run up that box office again and do a victory lap. We're going to put both of them in 3D before the... Because he's got like seven of these things that he wants to make. So yeah, we'll, we'll see on how, well, how they do. He's like the George R.R. R. Martin of the film world with this in, mm-hmm. in my head at the moment. So. I mean, this one came out, so we're still waiting on uh, the next <laughs> Game of Thrones book. So. That's true. Anyway... Uh, yeah. What about you? The, what have you been, James been watching? I started reading. <laughs> well, I started reading. James <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Or too much lightheartedness. We need to be serious, yeah. like Batman Begins. Um, serious and gritty. Where are the other movies going? <laughs> <laughs> well, I started reading American Prometheus. Encouraged by the the Oppenheimer hype, uh, starting the the homework early. Yeah, because I I need to get started <laughs> now. It's a it's a big book, so I've read the introduction and the first little bits of the first chapter, and it is really really great. It's such an easy read. The writing is so nice. fluid, and That's good. it's it's one of those history books that it's written so well. The narrative history. It really draws you in and they're telling the story incredibly well so far. And like I'm invested in Oppenheimer's parents already and they're going to be presumably gone pretty soon from the for the for most of the book. But I'm just I'm really fascinated and it's a really excellent read. I'm really glad that we get to read it for for this. And then nice. the only new movie I've seen you know, among all the Christmas stuff, I actually watched a non Christmas movie. Because I saw it popped up on Peacock, and it was Booksmart with Caitlin Deaver and Ooh. Beanie Feldstein. The 2019, 2018, 2018, yeah. 2019? Class of 2019, and it, uh, yeah, 19. comedy. And it I ruled. love that movie. Oh, yeah. It was fantastic. Oh. Billy Lord, showstopper. Really, really. Oh, I love She's so good at it. And the kid, him. what's his name? The one that, I don't know what his character's name is in the actual Jared? movie. Yeah, the the rich kid that just, yeah. just wants to do shows. I think his real name is Skylar Giznodo. Giznodo. I don't know how to say his name. Yeah, he's in Righteous Gemstones, right. and he's been in. Um, let's see, he was in Licorice Pizza for like five minutes. He's yeah. really funny, and the other stuff. I yeah, like his was. performance in that one too. Yeah. I mean, everybody, all the characters in that movie were really well fleshed out, even with the limited screen time, since it was. It's a high school movie, so you got to have all the different types of kids in there. Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, I mean, there was barely a minute I had a chance to take a break from laughing. It was so great. And then the music mm-hmm. selections in there were completely on point. I mean, you pull in some LCD sound system. Oh, I love that. LCD way. You've got song. me hooked in addition to everything else. The so. one uh, when she's in the pool, too. Yes. Perfect genius. Allison. Yeah, I listened to that one for like a week straight. Slip after away. That, movie. that one's just on loop. It's that's so a good. that's a song exploder pick from from a few it years is. ago. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, I've heard that one. If yeah. you love the song "Slip Away" by Perfume Genius, and you didn't know about this, go check out the song exploder episode on that because that is also another amazing thing. But book smart, excellent that comedy. Just so it's very it's so empathetic too. I feel like I think what I wrote when I saw it for the first time, it was like, I wish this existed when I was in high school. Yeah. Yeah. I actually was thinking of it a way that there, 
with a quote from the Nolan variations that Nicholas Rogue said about Christopher mm-hmm. Nolan, I think in the wake of Memento what was it. He said, Nicholas Rogue said kind of the, he's got that thing on film of, of memory where like it, it's all true, but it wasn't like that at all. So kind of that, yeah, yeah. that this thing is true and not true at the same time. That's kind of what book smart felt like mm-hmm. to me, but that I definitely feel that sentiment. Yeah. That's all that I have. We uh, really need to get moving on talking about James Cameron and yeah, this is a, a Nolan podcast. <laughs> yeah. So obviously today we are talking about Batman begins the film that rebooted Batman for it's well, not current iteration now, but uh, for a large part of the, the aughts with Christian Bale. So the first of three Batman movies that Christopher Nolan makes. The film uh, that Christopher Nolan Spiro. claims was the first to have reboot applied to it in a very prominent fashion. I don't no idea if that's true. I saw that. But he said I saw that book. too in that notes. And I made a note of that. I was like, I don't think that's right. But I guess in terms of modern comic book movies, that's correct. Because, I mean, the last Batman movies before this was Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. Yeah. Which are wildly different in tone from this movie that's um, putting it pretty lightly <laughs> <laughs> there are no mr i there are no Iceman puns in this one there's no jim carrey in a crazy riddler suit just killian murphy in a I'm trying to think of any because like this was around the same time that like the ben affleck daredevil and uh obviously you got spider-man fantastic spider-man four. Too. oh god the fantastic four but like all of those were the the first time that those had been put on screen, right, right. But but like no one called like the the Clooney and Val Kilmer Batman's like reboots. They were just like, oh, it's a new Batman movie. Yeah, there's also the um, Hulk movie with Eric Bana around that time too, wasn't there? Which I will die on that hill. That is a great <laughs> movie. It's definitely better than the Ed Norton one, but <laughs> um, I like that one a lot. But anyway, yeah, it kicked off the. I don't want to say craze, but like, I guess craze of a modern comic book movie reboots, adaptations. And like, this is way, way, way before any sort of like shared universe thoughts or anything, but he did such a good job with this and with uh, dark Knight and dark Knight rises that Warner brothers in DC wanted him to help Zack Snyder produce uh, man of steel and other Superman stuff for all of that. But we can get into that a little bit later. We can do a little uh, start with a little brief synopsis and some nuts and bolts info about the movie. As always, uh, spoiler alert is in effect. Uh, this movie is pretty old at this point. So if you haven't seen it, what are you doing with you? I'm just kidding. Go see it. Uh, <laughs> it is part of the 1 million watched on Letterboxd. They released that list recently. Oh, the, the, well, then there you go. Exactly. What are you doing? 30 something films on Letterboxd <laughs> that a million Letterboxd users have seen. So, yeah. But yes, um, there's not too much uh, in here that if you are a Batman fan, uh, you probably don't already know. But, you know, spoiler alert as follows. And if you have not seen Batman Begins, you can go ahead and pause this podcast and then go ahead and watch it and come back whenever you're ready. And now that you are back, I'll let Marshall take it away for the synopsis and some other details about the cast and crew. Yes, welcome back. (laughs) So we're going to talk about Batman Begins, released in 2005, directed by Christopher Nolan, starring Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Morgan Freeman, Liam Neeson, 
Gary Oldman. The list goes on. In color, a lot of people in this movie shot on 35 millimeter film, 140 minutes long. Yeah. And IMDb synopsis really somehow trying to conceal a lot of things about the the plot, but yeah, it says a lot of a lot of stuff. After training with his mentor, Batman <laughs> begins his fight to free crime-ridden <laughs> Gotham City from corruption. Uh, man, a piece of cheese for the IMD synopsis writer there. <laughs> but that's putting it one way. Yeah. With his mentor, man. But how did you watch this, Jake? But maybe it's more relevant for us to reiterate from the first episode that this, for both of us, this was the first Christopher Nolan film that we remember seeing. And for you, you got to see it in the theater. I misunderstood that the first time we were talking about this. I just thought you had also just seen it not in a theater like me, but would you want to talk about that experience again? Yeah. Um, yeah, let me go back. So we've got Insomnia, Memento, following. Yeah, this is the, it was the first Christopher Nolan movie that I ever saw. And this is the first one of his films that I saw in theaters. And I think ever since then, everything that he's ever made, I've seen. If not opening weekend at some point uh, in the theater, whenever it made its theatrical run. But this one's kind of a unique theatrical experience for me because I saw this in Dayton, Tennessee, which is where pretty much all of my family is from. But it's weird because I don't, I've only seen a handful of movies there at that theater because that theater does not exist anymore. Um, It was in a strip mall uh, for a while there in the early 2000s. And then now I think it's it's either a Gold's Gym or it's just like an empty storefront. Um, or something a couple of years before the pandemic. I think it closed down. I could be wrong about that. But I saw like the midnight premiere of Spider-Man 2 there um, the summer prior to this. And so a lot of fun memories there, even though I've only seen a couple of movies at that theater. I remember this for two reasons. One, because it was, you know, a new Batman movie and it was supposed to be darker and edgier. And I had never seen a Batman movie in theaters before because I think I was too young in the 90s to go see Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. But I remember my grandfather took me to go see this movie. And he had had like a pretty long day. And I remember we went to go see it. And I was like, I don't know if he's going to like this because he doesn't really like like anything violent. I don't even know what his taste in movies are in general. <laughs> and then I look over about halfway through and he's just like sawing logs. Like he's over there just like... <laughs> and after we left i woke him up and we walked out of the theater and i was i really liked it i was like oh this is really cool like the, the batmobile and the way that they did the the scarecrow was pretty cool everything and so i'm just like thinking about this because my brother was with me too and so we were talking about how cool it was and then i leaned over and i was like papa what was your favorite part and he was like oh you know when when he became the batman and i was like <laughs> when did when did that happen and he was like oh you know like whenever they wondered when the Batman was going to show it. Like it was so, he was clearly trying to, <laughs> to meet me on my level with that. Movie and it was, he was just so tired. He didn't want to, but I, I remember that fondly cause he, he didn't really get to take us to a lot of movies anymore since we, after we had moved uh, out of the country. And so he just wanted to hang out with us and spend time with us. But it was, even if it was something that he clearly did not really have an interest in, but it was pretty funny, but I liked it a lot. I don't think I went back in because we lived in Hawaii at that point and we were going. Uh, I think we went over to 
and went back to Tennessee like two summers in a row. Okay. Um, but I think I went back and saw it again in the theater that was on post. They would get kind of like second run movies or they would get first run movies like a couple months later. So you could get a cheaper ticket for it and see it again. Oh, yeah. Um, I know that I experience. I saw it. Yeah, I think I saw it one more time back when we went back home in Hawaii. But I liked it a lot. And like at that point, I didn't really even know like what a Christopher Nolan movie was or whatever. I was just like, this is a really cool Batman movie and liked it, uh, liked it a lot, liked the, the score especially and the, and we'll get into this later, but like the comic book feel of it, but also it kind of felt like steeped in reality a little bit, but yeah, it was, yeah. it was pretty good. It was a good first Nolan theatrical experience. Yeah. So my first Nolan theatrical experience wouldn't come until Dark Knight. I was too big mm. in 2005, Jealous. completely <laughs> obsessing over the release of Revenge of the Sith. I was completely nerding out with oh. Star Wars. At, who who among us? Who am I? Yeah, I mean, I went <laughs> I went many times to see Revenge of the Sith in the theater. Laugh if you will. And then it's also... Good, good movie. Yeah, I stand by it. But I think I mentioned in the first episode the Batman impression I had at the time was just all the campiness from the show. I've seen reruns on mm-hmm. TV land growing up. And then I think I actually did see, if not both of the Joel Schumacher Batman films, at least Batman and Robin in the theater, because I think my parents took me to the base theater to see that. Nice. Some reason. And then... Kick some ice. Oh, yeah. Rubber lips. Uh, there were so many puns. I saw so many memes like that this week. We both live in Texas, and it was uh, a little cold for everybody down bit. here. Saw a lot of Iceman memes this week. So I, you know, I'd seen the maybe not even the trailer, but maybe just some of the posters and the images. And I thought it looked cool, but mm-hmm. I was way too preoccupied with Star Wars saga wrapping up at the time. And then I think the month after that, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince was released. And so I was it being was. ready for that. Yeah, it was. And then yeah. between those two, I didn't have bandwidth for anything else. So it kind of just never registered for me. I, I guess I knew it was maybe mm-hmm. well received, but I wasn't in a hurry to see it. So I finally saw it a few years later in 2008, right before I graduated high school. The last days of my senior year, I had borrowed the DVD from one of my friends because I was just catching up on a bunch of action movies that I hadn't seen, trying to get some things knocked out. Like I watched Die Hard for the first time around that time. Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels were two of the ones that stand out and i also borrowed batman begins so i had pretty much an entire afternoon to sit and do nothing because i think it was a senior day for like a bunch of other kids to go back to their high their elementary school and that was just with the public schools i got to a private elementary school so that wasn't really a thing i was gonna do so i kind of just had the entire newspaper room to myself with my newspaper teacher there and she was doing her thing and i ate lunch and watched the movie on the dell monitor as all the computers oh, were as all the computers probably nice. still are nice and even on that small tiny screen i thought it was really brilliant i yeah it blew my doors off and i mainly was watching it because i was ready for the dark night i was really keyed in on that because heath ledger had died at the beginning of the year in 2008 mm-hmm. but 
and so I wanted to see Batman Begins, so it was good to go on all the background. But I was not ready for how good Batman Begins was. So also, as previously mentioned, my main kind of comic book movie other experience or just idea was kind of informed by Sam Raimi's Spider-Man most of all. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I, you know, I love the first two third one, eh. but I was used to, you know, having the, <laughs> the good solid action and, and story, but also like the campiness with, right. You know, right. Like a and, heightened. Yeah. Yeah. Which I had no problem with brought some levity to it. And you still have that lightheartedness, kind of like the Marvel feel, really, kind of like the forerunner of the MCU kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I had never really considered the idea that you could something like that, a comic book movie, quote unquote, could be so self-serious. And, you know, the traditional default way to refer to this movie is you know, gritty and real. And I honestly can't remember if I had seen Iron Man before I finally watched Batman Begins. I definitely didn't see Iron Man like the weekend it came out because I had a lot of exams. But I'm pretty sure I watched Batman Begins first. But Iron Man also kind yeah. of was right, came out a few months before The Dark Knight. It was kind of its own revelation. It really, really kicked off the MCU. And that was just the contrast seeing Batman Begins and then seeing Iron Man so close together, which of course I also really liked. But just that contrast. And it really just raised the hype level and excitement for The Dark Knight for me. You know, I had like was watching the trailer on repeat and had the wallpaper on my, my new college laptop. And I also spent like literal actual hours downloading the soundtrack for this on iTunes, because at that time we still had dial up at my house. It took us a while to get Wi-Fi. Oh, man. So that was really fun. I remember just firing up some games taking, and just checking it over and over. Yeah. Like three hours to download one song. Oh, Your kids today, you don't know how good you got oh, it. Oh, man. Steal the phone line and make sure no one picks it up and yep. messes everything. Yeah, that was that was a moment in time. But like you, I also didn't really register like the Christopher Nolan movie. Yeah, I was too definitely much. too young to have seen like Memento or have like wanted to see Memento when it came out. I think when that movie yeah. was released, I was like nine. So, yeah. And I mean, even for after I watched The Dark Knight, I I kind of paid attention. Oh, Christopher Nolan, cool. But it was only really mm-hmm. after Inception that I really got locked into. Oh, okay, this is who this guy is. Got it. Right. So, yeah. So that was it. Was a great introduction. It's a pretty good film to start out introducing someone to Christopher Nolan. I think not his best. I mean, we still have quite a few others that are head and shoulders above this, but it's a uh, really enjoyable really entertaining film but not without its flaws which i think we're gonna shift into gear two now or perhaps we should do a quick plot summary for this thing as we roll along oh uh, yeah we can do that, that might um, be a good idea yeah i'll take that so we open on bruce wayne in a prison in southeast asia and then he uh it flashes Someone asks him, what is he afraid of? And then it flashes back to his childhood where he has his first run in with the bats uh, on his family's property on the Wayne Manor property. This also sets up uh, his father, Thomas Wayne, as a doctor and philanthropist. And it sets up Rachel Dawes, his childhood friend, and later possibly sometimes love interest, assistant DA, maybe. 
but it shows him getting to uh, falling down the well and getting terrified by all of the bats. And so he, that we also get that great line uh, from Thomas Wayne, the why do we fall Bruce so that we can learn to pick ourselves back up? Yeah. Which is going to be a motif throughout, not just this movie, but the whole trilogy here that right. Nolan makes. And then we learn that Thomas or we learn that Bruce Wayne has um, basically voluntarily exiled himself over to uh, Southeast Asia to live with the criminal element and to study them and to learn from them. After he, we learn in flashback, we get the, uh, we get the Thomas and Martha Wayne death scene outside of the theater and Bruce witnesses this, a mugger robs them and then tries to steal Martha Wayne's pearls and then shoots both of them in cold blood and runs away. Um, and that stuck with him forever. And then when he returns home from college at one point for the hearing, the parole hearing for the guy that killed his parents, he goes there with the intent to shoot and kill them, to kill the man, except for Carmine Falcone, the crime boss of Gotham has gotten to him first and has had the guy killed. And so then he learns that just how bad and how terrible Gotham actually is with the criminal element. But instead of doing something about it right then, he decides that he's going to leave town and then go and uh, flee to Africa and Southeast Asia and live among criminals and try and just kind of his own version of eat, pray, love it up uh, over there. And try to try to try to fit. The note that I took was this is like a, like it's very much like a study abroad program type thing because he's slumming it, but like he can still call Alfred to get the private jet to get him out, which is what he does. Right. But uh, he goes over there and he ends up training with um, a guy named uh, Ducard played by Liam Neeson breaks him out of jail and knows who he is, knows his family history, knows his lineage and tells him that if he really wants to train to fight, he needs to come train with his people up on the mountaintop. And he goes up there and trains with them. Uh, the League of Shadows. The League of Shadows, led by a mysterious figure named Ra's al Ghul, played by Ken Watanabe. And uh, there he learns to not just become a great fighter, but the concept of you can stop a person, but you can't stop an idea. And so we can get into this a lot later when we talk about themes and stuff, but very much... Uh, how do you kill terrorism if it's an idea and not a person type reaction? Uh, this movie was released in 2005. Right. And they started writing it in 2003. So two years after 9-11, and it was released two years after the start of the Iraq war. So terrorism and ideas and what all of that means were really big in the American psyche at the time. But so he goes over there. He learns to fight. He learns to make himself invisible. He learns. Um, Doesn't learn to mind the surroundings. Doesn't learn, no, <laughs> no, he learns uh, ninjutsu. And so he does all this. And all of this, mind you, because this is a Christopher Nolan movie, this is not told in a straightforward fashion. You get the Wayne parents' death scene in a flashback within the Batman flashback of him training. And then you get that flashback. So it's kind of like all a. But it works. It's really good. Like the note that I took when he it does like a montage of him training. It's like it's like a lyrical music montage almost, which is what Nolan said. Um, he's quoted as saying in the 
Nolan variations, but they wanted it to be like an ostinato. But so he does all that, and then he returns home after seven years, and he uh, comes back, gets a job back with uh, Wayne Enterprises after they had presumed him dead. So they got rid of all of his shares, but now he's basically working for the company. Meets Lucius Fox, played by Morgan Freeman, who is the head of research and development, and that's where he gets all his cool Batman gear. Uh, so he's basically like the cue to Bruce Wayne's James Bond. Yeah. Which is definitely how how Nolan frames it here and how they intended to write it. Um, and so he's back and he's trying to navigate, am I Bruce Wayne or am I this he calls him a monster, but this monster, this vigilante thing that I need to rid Gotham of its criminal element. Um, and so he's trying to figure out how to do all of that and train himself to become Batman. All while Rachel Dawes, his childhood best friend, is now an assistant DA and is trying to get all the criminals off the street, which is hard when every government official in Gotham is pretty much bought and paid for by Carmine Falcone, played by Tom Wilkinson. And so he's reconnecting with her, figuring out what's going on in the courts and criminal world there. Meanwhile, Jim Gordon, played by Gary Oldman, is trying to do his best to stay on the straight and narrow in a town that, in his words, is so bent. Who is there to rat out to anyway? His partner is Flass, which is a good nod to Batman Year One, like we mentioned in the earlier episode. And so he is just trying to figure out how to keep his head among everything. And then Batman realizes that he is uh, the one one good apple of the bunch. And so he forms an alliance with him to try and bring down Falcone and bring in everything else. And then on top of all of that, you've got uh, Dr. Crane, played by Killian Murphy, Dr. who Crane. is also bought and paid for by Falcone. He's in cahoots with him. And his methods of helping people in his psychiatry is to gas them with nerve gas that makes them see their worst fear and then put on a burlap sack and become the scarecrow and then get them to just just commits them to arkham asylum on insanity charges and so that's how he gets people to to cop to insanity instead of uh having to deal with the legal system but the two of them are actually both working for Razal ghoul who we learn later is trying to use that agent in the gas to poison the water hole as it may <laughs> uh, of Gotham and just bring down the entire city. And so later we learn that much like the league of shadows taught Batman that you can kill a person, but you can't kill an idea. Ra's al Ghul is more of a title and an idea than an actual person. And the leader of the whole thing is actually Ducard. It's Liam Neeson. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and we learned that the League of Shadows has tried to take down Gotham and has succeeded sometimes, many, many times before. Um, with other cities. And so with other cities. And so the first time they tried to do it was with crime infestation. And he said that Thomas Wayne was one of the uh, stalwarts against that. And so it was made it, made it difficult for them to take down Gotham beforehand. But this time, using the nerve agent in the gas, they will be able to just turn Gotham against itself, poison the water supply, and then take down the city because of its decadence and its crime and everything like that. And so then that leads to a big 
showdown fight where Batman must finally defeat the man that taught him everything he knows. And he also has to uh, deal with letting maybe letting Rachel know who he really is. Alfred already knows, but you know, and, uh, Fox, Fox is not dumb as he lets, as he tells him, don't think of me as an idiot. Uh, yeah. Don't think of me as an idiot. So he knows. And then it finally all ends. He's defeated in the process. Wayne Manor burns down. He defeats Ra's al Ghul Ducard for the second time. And then he vows to rebuild Wayne Manor. He gets uh, some of the, the board members of Wayne Enterprises kicked off and he installs Fox as head of the company so that he has a, an in there, takes over the whole rest of the company as Bruce Wayne, um, and then embarks on his next adventure to finally embrace his calling as Batman because he has now begun his journey on that. And then it ends with a nice little sequel nod where Jim Gordon says that they're looking at this new criminal who is unlike anything they've ever seen before, but he leaves a good calling card and it's a Joker card. So it leads into Dark Knight very easily. Pretty much lifted from um, the ending of Batman year one, except they actually added Batman yes. to it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I also like the the touch here that it's Gordon that creates the bat signal with the bat, uh, the the metal bat in the light. Thought that was pretty fun. Right. Yeah. But yeah, so that is what happens pretty much. Um, and the first thing that I wanted to mention was, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Everyone gives Nolan a lot of crap for starting the whole trend of like grim, dark and gritty superhero movies and everything. This one really is like, it's the most comic booky definitely of this trilogy. I would say maybe some of the most comic booky parts of like a lot of the, the DC uh, movies. Cause it kind of has like one foot steeped in comic book imagery and comic book logic. And then the other foot is, steeped in reality where like they filmed in Chicago locations and they've got real world applications for why the Batmobile is the way it is and how his armor can do what it does, you know, without having to go into too many specifics. But there's yeah. also like Scarecrow is in this movie. Like the fact that Wayne Manor is at the center of Gotham and all the water supply goes to this tower and all of the subway lines come to this middle thing. Like that's never brought up ever again in any of these other movies. And it's very, like, it's very out there. Like, there's a criminal hangout spot called the Narrows that's never mentioned again because it gets defeated or it gets blown up and destroyed here. You've got... Kind of like uh, Rikers Island. Really yeah, yeah. Like, you've, you've got that. You've got Falcone, who he makes an appearance in the Batman that came out this past year. But he's also one of the big... Uh, he's mentioned in year one. And so you like the script borrows a lot from year one, but also it's just, it's very like, I don't know the imagery and the bats and the, like, it's all very Gothic, but it's also not quite camp, but like the, the scene where he's, he's got flasks up on the rope, but you know, doing his, the Batman voice that's been parodied so much, the where did the other drugs go type stuff. <laughs> yeah. All of that is just straight up comic book stuff. Whereas I feel like the dark Knight and the dark Knight rises are much more 
movies that have Nolan's personal stamp on them. I feel like this is him trying on the outfit a little bit. He's trying on the cape, so to speak. Maybe it fits. Sometimes it doesn't. And then you can definitely tell the next two in this trilogy are Nolan movies. But this one, I feel like right. is definitely like it's first and foremost a Batman movie, which I, I like. I don't think that's good or bad, but I, I think it's an interesting contrast to the rest of them. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I really yeah. noticed on this latest viewing while also reading the script along with it, the thing that stood out was just the differences between the script and the finished film. And yeah, like Mm -hmm. it really, that script really, really reads like a comic script. Kind of what you mentioned in the last episode with the dialogue in Batman year one, how you said if you could take this out and try to put it in a film, it wouldn't work as well. But in the comic book, it worked. That's exactly what happened with the script that, that we read for this. Mm -hmm. Cause some of the lines here were really wince inducing. I don't know exactly which draft or what point in the production it was that we read, but it's only David Goyer's name on it who co-wrote the script. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but it had all the right beats that ended up in the final film. But I'm going to assume Nolan did rework the details into what made it into the final film. But there were like a good bit of the changes were kind of more show, not tell things. So there's like a lot yeah, more subtlety. Yeah. It kind of layered things a bit better, like with the League of Shadows plans to destroy Gotham and or Earl, the Wayne Enterprises CEO, his trying to take the company public and just, you know, right. like turn away yeah, enterprises yeah. basically into a defense contractor and make mega bucks that way. And some other changes that from the script to the final film were kind of like making Raz Al Ghul just a little bit less of a caricature of a villain because in the in the script when he's monologuing and telling Bruce the plan before he burns down Wayne Manor, it's like we're gonna destroy Gotham and then the rest of the world will see it and the rest of the world will dissolve and it's like the agent smith speech from the matrix really it's like humanity will rip itself apart and will return to balance with nature as opposed to in the final film it's like we're gonna the league of shadows is like this agent for refreshing things when society gets too decadent because he mentions the league of shadows like burned rome to the ground and set the plague rats on the ships and burned london and so from this like completely psychotic ridiculous almost like laughable plot to just like, okay, yeah, we're just going to destroy Gotham because it's gotten too corrupt and too big for itself, too big to fail, but we're actually going to prove that wrong as opposed to we're going to take over and destroy the entire world. <laughs> yeah. So it's like also a big like example of that. Yeah. Poisoning the water supply and everything like that's the most outlandish comic booky thing. I think out of this whole show. I mean, I don't know. Bane gets pretty wild. Uh, that's true. And uh, like, there's some stuff from the Joker and the next one that are pretty out there. But like, I feel like that movie takes such pains to be like, this is an actual city. And this is, you know, how this actually would happen if he tried to blow some stuff up, you know, right. Like, it all, it's just like, yeah, it, gas it all ties back, kill people. It all ties back to what Nolan says from the Nolan variations, what he was trying to do with Batman Begins and then into the other two kind of like establish a world where you could see this is possible, you know, with what you were just mm-hmm. saying with, they go to lengths to explain, Oh, here's the practicality of the bat suit, how it can exist. The, the tumbler, the Batmobile and things like this. Like, okay. I think one of the big hits of the movie, why it was so resonant was maybe that grounding it in reality aspect, where people could see, Oh, this, 
could sort of be something in the real world. Of course, it's still a movie, you know, mm-hmm. like it's this guy actually went out dressed up like a bat. And there are times where you see just Batman walking through places. And honestly, it looks kind of ridiculous. You're like, wow, just like he's walking through Arkham Asylum to get out during that sequence. And he throws the the miniature little grenades at the at the cell door and then blows a hole in the wall. And he's just like walking through there. It's just like, excuse me, to the inmates. <laughs> like clearly yeah if you like if you think about it for a second and think beyond the the veneer of this being a movie man this is like really ridiculous this person bruises like completely has had like complete break with reality doing all this but yes like some of the things like yeah poisoning the water supply that is kind of really comic booky but the film makes those with what we ended up in the finished film compared with the scripts like that's what it did for me it made those things work and it didn't it didn't make me roll my eyes really at like oh so okay like yeah this is a little bit outlandish that we did in pretty well and made it feel like it worked really well for me and just the story overall again it hit the big beats but some scenes and dialogue they benefited hugely from the re rewrite or what they ended up being in the final film the through lines are so much stronger like the league of shadows ultimately being responsible for creating the economic turmoil that led to mm-hmm. Bruce's parents being murdered all the way in Enterprise's subterfuge and then all the strain on Bruce's relationships that his being Batman has. And also like how they weaved Crane into the story wasn't much better in the film than the script draft that we read. And I was also really surprised at kind of all the details in the film that I had overlooked because I would read some lines and be like, oh, that didn't make it in. And then I was watching the movie. And I was like, oh, it did. Wow. I kind of don't know like how I don't remember that don't know what that says about me but now I've noticed that so yeah this being reading the script and seeing what we ended up with I really appreciated how they arrived at the finished product because kind of got a glimpse of what it could have been like and it wouldn't have been wouldn't have been as good still might have been fine especially compared with the 90s mid 90s Batman films but the hand that was guiding it did excellent work and you know the strongest hand I guess would be Nolan's hand here but another thing we started touching on was kind of the you said it feels more like a Batman film instead of like having the Nolan imprint on it and I think a huge part of that is the fact that is his first like yeah huge blockbuster and there's a bit of talk in the book about the studio influence and Mm -hmm. kind of going all out to meet the studio concerns of like the more scale and the more scale and more scale as no one described it. And he says, we very specifically wrote it in the biggest way possible. May as big yeah, as it could possibly yeah. be. And I think that's also part of the reason why, like I said before, when I first saw it, it was incredible. I never, you know, considered anything could be like that for like a comic book movie. But down the years, it's kind of not as impressive to me anymore and i think it's you can kind of see it fraying at the edges a little bit and not just in terms of like effects because some of the cgi here that they do you know with like the wayne tower and some of the stuff you can kind of see it's a little bit dated but more something just feels off maybe it's like that bigness or i think it is like the fact that no one was trying to do things to get ahead of the studio concerns like he says he tries to like work in a way that they don't have to worry about him so they built like massive sets for this. They built 
and basically yeah. entire portion of the city. They built the entire Batcave from scratch. And no one even learned from this, too. He said, we built these enormous sets. But of course, what we started to learn together is building sets is not a great way to get scale on screen. It really isn't. So I noted like, oh, yeah, they can't beat real life. He kind of rectified this in the Dark Knight with all the big cityscapes and actually shooting real life stuff in Chicago and with the IMAX cameras. But then I was reviewing the chapter from the Nolan Variations on Batman Begins and, and Tom Show nailed it. He said that the Gotham of Batman Begins doesn't yet cohere architecturally or morally to the hard, clean lines of the Chicago Loop here combined with the Victorian Gothic architecture of Wayne Manor. Some no. unnecessary futuristic no. touches like the monorail and the fictional narrows. And then while the trashier set finale feels like the work of a director honoring his studio duties rather than his own creative north. So I'd actually forgotten about that passage until I reviewed it. But I, that was it. That was the, the thing in my subconscious that was glomming onto something kind of fell off. My brain was telling me something's not quite right here. And so I feel like it's that mishmash of the big sets plus the real world stuff like shooting on the glacier and having some there's some really great shots in this where you can tell it's a real city shot, kind of like a helicopter swooping around. Batman kind of standing on the edge of a building like a gargoyle or something like we see a few more of those in the dark night as well but it's just that it's not like tonal dissonance but it's I guess the visual dissonance it throws you off a bit and I've I started noticing that the last few times I've watched Batman Begins so the idea was there that I read in the book but I think I was already starting to notice it and it's kind of articulated really well here and I think that's the thing that is the biggest disconnect for me and that slightly isn't really working for me anymore on my repeat viewings of Batman Begins. Mm -hmm. I think it was, I like this a lot more on a rewatch than I thought I would, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of tonal stuff going on that I feel like he never really got a handle on. Like one, this is, it's a pretty funny movie. Uh, yes. <laughs> a lot a lot more jokes than I remember, especially when he is in his Bruce Wayne persona. And then my uh, Michael Caine is so good. Like my notes towards the end of this movie is just like line after line of whatever Michael Caine says. But my favorite one was when he, he picks him up from Tibet or wherever he is over in, in Asia. And he was like, well, I can't really, you know, undeclare you from the dead. And, He's like, you had me declared dead. He's like, yeah, you were gone for so long. Like, they just thought you were dead. And he's like, well, it's a good thing I left all my shares to you. Then he's like, yep, it is nice. <laughs> and you can borrow the Rolls Royce if you want. Just bring it back with a full tank. Like, he's, it's so, it's so good. Because he can go from that to lecturing him about the importance of carrying on his father's legacy at the drop of a hat. Like, that's just Michael Caine for you. But so you got like the, some of the humor and the quips and stuff. But then you also have the, I don't think it has a villain, too many villain, too many villains problems, but I think it's got like, I feel like Scarecrow was in like a horror movie. I think Killian Murphy is acting like he's in a horror movie. And then you've got right. Falcone doing like his mobster stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you've got Ra's al Ghul as like the uh, like, like new a world felt. order big bad yeah like a yeah, blue felt like yeah. very arch super villain type person and juggling all of that i don't really think it quite works and like 
because I completely forgot. Like, I can remember most of the set pieces from Dark Knight, like, right now, and I haven't seen that movie in a few years. Mm-hmm. I completely forgot how this movie's action thing, like, I completely forgot that it was a party at Wayne Manor that sets it all off. I mm-hmm. knew Liam Neeson was actually the the villain the whole time. I remembered that, but I couldn't really think of, like, I was like, oh, yeah, how does this happen again? So it's there's a lot to juggle here and there's a lot going on. And I think that, yeah, to your point, that is a, a victim of like, we got to go maximalist. We've got all the studio money. We've got to honor whatever notes the studio has given us, but at the same time, make the movie I want to make. And I feel like it's all, even in like the color palette, it's not what we would associate with Nolan later on. Right. Like the blues and the, the clean cut stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's you can still see that like there are touches of where Nolan puts his own stamp on stuff like the beginning, how it keeps circling back and like it's like a montage flashback thing with like the falling in the Batcave and his parents dying and then climbing up the mountain and training. All of that is edited really, really well. And you can definitely tell that that's a Christopher Nolan movie up front. But. Uh, yeah, I think largely there's it's a lot of DC and Warner Brothers saying like, hey, we need you to make a Batman movie because we've got a lot riding on this and we don't know if we can reboot the franchise if this doesn't do well. Yeah, and there was also in a way a lot riding on it for Nolan, too, because he was in the book. He talks about how he kind of built up to it oh, like everything else was Batman Begins wasn't really my biggest transition thing. It was, you know, going from following to memento on the orders of magnitude more money i had and mm-hmm. signing was my first studio picture but really this was this was the one where people were going to start remembering the name let's be real here and they did so he talks in the book about how he was he said he's afraid there's a way of doing these films that i was very afraid of because i knew it wouldn't give me something of my own we were being told all kinds of things mm-hmm. by the studio mm-hmm. about how long it would take to prep and what it would involve. And he also talked mm-hmm. about in the pre-production of the movie, how studios like to just hire a bunch of previs and concept artists and spending millions of dollars on projects that don't even see the light of day and they get stuck in development hell right. or just get canned. So yeah, that I think that feeling is definitely pervasive, if not all the time, quite a bit throughout this. Yeah, and Tom Jones hit upon it in the book too. It's you feel like at times that he's just doing things because the studio needed it done, and he was maybe still feeling his way of how he could push the bounds of that system. Like he talks about also in the book, comparing it to his boarding school experience. He said, like, what I learned from that is you're learning to work within the system, and you're trying to feel out the boundaries and where you can push it, and where you should just stay back and avoid something and and not even engage. Right. So. This movie, very clear example of that. But I still think it it's very well done. I mean, the cast alone, you have some really great performances. You can play a really good like who's who in terms of who you have going forward with him and repeat uh, who are going to work with him again. And also some actors who appeared in his first few movies who are like here again, which is really cool to see. And even just one-offs. So Christian Bale's being being the prestige. Michael Caine is going to be in literally everything else from here on out. Ken Watanabe is an exception. Gary Oldman and Morgan Freeman are in the rest of the trilogy. Killian Murphy is Mm -hmm. in, you know, like every other film after this. 
Yeah. And then Mercury. The star of Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> and then it was cool to see basically little cameos, essentially, or bit parts for like Mark Boone Jr. as Flass, who is the, the yeah. motel clerk from Mo- Memento. From and Memento. then Lucy Russell and Jeremy Theobald. We get two thirds of the cast of following here or shoot three fourths of it because John Nolan's in this too. Dang it. Um <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lucy Russell's in the restaurant at the hotel. Jeremy Theobald's the water technician. John Nolan is one of the Wayne Board, Wayne Enterprises board members. And then you get Larry Holden, which I don't know if you picked up on it, but Larry Holden is Jimmy Grant's in Memento. Then he's also in Insomnia. He's the Alaska cop who gets shot during the chase of Finch in the fog. Oh, yeah. And then he's the DA in this, um, who's actually also named Finch, weirdly. And uh, he gets shot once he discovers the microwave emitter. So poor Larry Holden showing up in all these Christopher Nolan movies just to get shot all the time. Pour one out for him. Thank you, Larry Holden. And then, yeah, you've got Liam Neeson, who, I mean, I can listen to him read the phone book. Like, he delivers all his line deliveries of this are just, like, you... The, you, 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 you would almost laugh at it like that line yeah it's so good like some of the lines you might laugh at but he commits and sells it and he it's really them. great yeah. um also if he hasn't really i mean you can debate on whether or not any of his uh like badass acting hero type stuff or villain varying degrees of hero villainy but like this is the is this the last time that he straight up plays the bad guy in something i don't know I don't I know. Remember. It it feels like it to me. I don't know. He's been on a like taken action movie kick, you know, for the last like fifteen years. Um, yeah, but yeah. I mean, he did, it's working for him. But yeah, this is the. I think this is one of the few times I'd love to see him. The last like couple decades, that he's again. actually played the big bad. Yeah, yeah. And then to round out the kind of almost an absolute murderer's row of cast. Yeah, Tom Wilkinson, like you said, Linus Roach, who mm-hmm. I guess the biggest other thing I know him from was he was on Law and Order for a while. Um, Rutger Hauer as Evil Wayne Enterprises CEO, relatively yeah, evil. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Earl. Yep. And then Katie Holmes is Rachel. And let it be said, at this time when this came out, she was with Tom Cruise, I think, at this time, right? And so she was well, that's what a I was, massive yeah, Taylor, star. Huge. Taylor was watching this with me. I was like, I think she was still with Tom Cruise at this point. Yeah. Was this also, was this the summer that War of the Worlds came out too? Was it 2005? 2005? So I think, I think you're, I think that's right. And it was either, it was either just after or the couch jumping was about to happen for Tom Cruise. The couch jumping was on the press tour for War of the Worlds. So okay. yeah, War of the Worlds comes out that summer as well. Okay, so um, yeah, so yeah like, she's yeah, she's everywhere. I know she's, she's kind of everywhere. maybe a little forgotten in the sands of time here, but at the time, like she was one of the biggest names in Hollywood. And I also feel like my note on her for this movie is so this movie clearly takes place in the modern day, but there are not really any aside from the cars and some of the tech that he uses. It doesn't really give away that it's it's in like a post millennium society, Mm -hmm. like everything else kind of seems timeless and like grimy New York streets and everything. And then like Katie Holmes's face like looks like she knows what a nights and weekends plan is like, (laughs) 
like everyone else. I feel like you could say like, oh yeah, this is like a weird, like out of time. Maybe it takes place now. Maybe it takes place back in the eighties or nineties or whatever. And then she shows up and it's like, yes, this is definitely 2000 early 2000s movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, as far as Katie Holmes goes, I know she got a lot of stick when this came out and I get maybe still is, I don't know for being not very good, which I mean, I don't think she's bad in this movie. I'll be honest. I think she's fine. But, and she also has a few really good line deliveries. Like when she tells Bruce, like your father would be ashamed of you. That hit. Mm-hmm. So let's. And I think she, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's just like a, she's underwritten. Yeah. And like, again, talking about the script in the final film, like given what we, we have in the movie is actually a lot better than what there was in the script. So yeah, that's, that's, eh, that's, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So even then, yeah that also could have been worse but yeah she's just kind of there and really kind of just cold toward bruce the whole time just based on their interaction before he went off yeah but yeah all i'm trying to say is justice for katie holmes i don't think she's terrible like the i think the common thing is unfairly maligned is our phrase these days right unfairly maligned yeah she's fine she does fine anyway last last cast member i wanted to mention little jack gleason Lil King Joffrey shows up as a scared that kid in the narrows. The yeah, that is the kid. I was like, why does he look so? Yeah. So Joffrey shows up, and we we now have the crossover basis between Game of Thrones and the DC comic universe, which I'm sure we'll have a whole thing coming down the years now because we have that to go off of. But beyond that, just want a special shout out moment for the score in this first time working with Hans Zimmer. And also with James Newton Howard, who was brought in to, to partner up, do some of the dramatic scenes, and Hans Zimmer like handled the action, and mm. we get a really good dose of what Nolan calls a minimalist composer with maximum production values. So a maximal minimalist, a very big sound. Nolan says, but the ideas behind it are incredibly minimalist, very very simple, and I, I totally agree with that because you hear the big booming score during the action sequences, and when you really listen to it though, you're like, this isn't. Yeah, there's not much of a melody here. It's just really driving. It's got that, you know, the ostinato patterns yeah. and it's just got the energy. And then the main theme just being two notes. No one says, but I heard that it scared the shit out of me. Um, and so no, it's, no, I, no, I don't no, are you yeah. sure? But it's really amazing. It doesn't, it almost doesn't have a right to work like it does, but it does work mm-hmm. in the scenes where say, Bruce is in the bat cave being swarmed by the bats for the first time. And he stands up and it's the first declaration of the theme. Everything's thumping. And um, that honestly, listening to the soundtrack, well, this time, but also like throughout the year, honestly, um, the track that has that sequence on it on the soundtrack is called Barbicella. All the track names on the soundtrack are after genuses of bats. Um, Mm Normally, I know. Yeah, I noted Barbastella too. I yeah, like that one a lot. Normally, like I think of the big action cues, like Molasses. Obviously, that's the track that plays during the the big chase scene in the Batmobile while he's trying to save Rachel. But on recent listens, like listening to that track, it's number four on the soundtrack. It starts out with the voice of the child, with that solo, really mournful mm-hmm. tune that comes up when we're thinking about Bruce's parents' murder. But honestly, that's probably the best track on on the album with that and then it transitions into that sequence that they use in the Batcave the first big introduction of the two note theme I think it's the first time it happens in the film so just 
man, it's really good. Like this is not the last time. This is not the the death knell for David Julian. He'll do the prestige, but we're almost done with him here and it's switching to full on Zimmer pretty soon. And yeah, man, it's such a good score. <laughs> it's they did a really great job and then they went one better on the dark night too, just like the film overall. It's it's really great. So yeah, I like that because especially with this one, it kind of sets the tone too for what's going to come with Dark, Dark Knight Rises. A lot of the, obviously the same theme, but I feel like they don't fully get into the, like the mode of like what you think of as the, the Batman score from these, this trilogy until Dark Knight Rises. I feel like this is, it sounded a little bit almost more like a thriller score to me as opposed to like the big grand, like this is a movie movie type score feeling of dark Knight. And dark yeah. Knight it was very atmospheric. And for the most part, yeah. this score, because when I did download it, when I was a teenager, I was really excited to hear all the action tracks and, and hear those things. Mm-hmm. And I kind of dismissed just all the, the really low key stuff. And now it's more like that's the real vibe of the film. It's goes with like all the themes, the fear and the, the revenge and, and all that and all the psychological stuff who kind of just yeah. like sometimes like little string descending strings and very creepy kind of stuff. Yeah. There's, there's some thriller and there's some horror in there really. Yeah. Especially with the scarecrow stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And so it does a whole th- lot of things and it's really yeah chameleon like to be honest. There's a yeah. lot of time ticking stuff here too. Yeah. Um, calling back to some of those stuff. I also like, you said the track names are all different genus of bats. Yeah. I like that at one point the tracks form an acrostic to spell Batman. Oh, yeah. Uh, I feel like I knew that at one point, but that's a good, yeah, yeah. Let's see what you there. Because this is the only one, once you get into Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, the song titles are like actually more descriptive of what's going on in the movie. This is the first right. one, the only one to do that type of thing. So that's pretty... I like that. That's pretty cool. It's uh, um, it's gonna it's gonna help me get a Jeopardy clue right someday. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what else? I don't have much else beyond scattered thoughts and and one offs. But if you have anything, you may um, go ahead. I have I have a quote that I would like to get into. So in the Nolan variations. We talked about how this kind of reacted to uh, world events and everything, but then also at the same time kind of kicked off this like grim era of comic book movies. And I think that the reason that there's been a lot of like more scholarship on this than I have talked about it here. So there's, there's more reputable sources than me, but they've gone into depth about how we looked for more realism and we looked for like kind of quote unquote grittier stuff in not just superhero movies, but action movies and horror movies and like all sorts of media after nine 11 as a way to kind of like engage with like all of the, the realism and the horror that we were seeing on the news every day and all the, the news reports of the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan and everything. And obviously we see all that with like hindsight now, like all the art that was being made at the same time was right. just in reaction to whatever was going on. But the the quote from the Nolan variations uh, that Nolan says is when he's asked about 
the themes of terrorism and fear and everything in this movie. He says, truthfully, we never reach for relevance because we know how long it takes to make a film. The world moves on incredibly fast. So to us, starting on Batman Begins, it was always about what we were afraid of. And obviously what we were afraid of post 9-11 was terrorism. And we talked about it a bit, about the American Taliban and about John Walker Lind. Bruce goes to a mysterious foreign country and then gets radicalized. We didn't do it that consciously, but at the end of the day, we were sitting there three years after 9-11. There's no way to not have that be a huge part of things. And so there's definitely like all the talk about vigilantism and how you have to stand for more than just taking revenge for your own personal needs. If you want to be this hero, you have to stand for everyone. You can't just do whatever you want. And then you have to, you know, like it comes from Ra's al Ghul, but justice is balance, that quote. Mm-hmm. And then the whole idea of, you know, one person being made to be the arbiter of justice for an entire city was a very relevant theme uh, yeah. for whatever everything we were going through at the time. And there's a lot of like other, I think the that stuff and like the vigilantism and the fascism ideals get talked a lot about more with regards to dark knight and the whole hero they need not the one they deserve themes there but this one i think does lay the groundwork for a lot of that and i think a lot of that was just subconsciously from living in the world at that time like what does a a post 9-11 batman look like and this is the this is it basically (laughs) you know like the the dark knight gets into more like the surveillance state aspect of it yeah, But this one is much more, you know, he's driven by revenge for his parents' death and driven by anger at the way that his city has been treated and everything. But there is a lot there about if this were someone else, the thought exercise of, you know, like, okay, this is an American who went abroad and then came back and has all these things. But what if this was, you know, someone else who did the same thing and wanted to come attack America, which is what happens with Brazil Cool in the end. So you get the very Nolan, two sides of the same coin, duality theme here. Right, right. But I just thought that it was very, because like the whole time I was watching this, I was like, it's 2005, right? So that I'm sure that was probably on their minds. I completely forgot that that quote was in the book. And then when I went back and looked at it, I thought that was interesting that clearly it had to, like it was on everyone's minds, you know? Yeah. And the, the way that, I think that it's interesting that this movie responded to it in that way. And then you've got something like Spider-Man 2 that came out a year beforehand. And then the response to that, which is a story that takes place in actual New York City, not the DC stand-in for New York. Um, Mm -hmm. And that response was for a subway of people to band together to save Peter Parker and not tell anyone his real identity when they realize the mask comes out, you know, like it's yeah. more of a, the human element to it. And then this is much more of the, the theme of this movie is fear and what are we afraid of? And it's Falcone who has the line of, you know, you can't, you always fear uh, what you don't understand. Yeah. You can't compete with fear. And then you always fear what you don't understand. A lot of true lines from a lot of, a lot of villains in this movie. Yeah, um, and along with revenge and, and that, justice too, themes of that. Yeah, and the yeah, you fear what you don't understand. Like that's true for as long as humankind has existed, basically. But that was especially true 
for America at the time that this was released. As well as with um, Rachel's line about revenge is about making yourself feel better. That's not mm-hmm. justice. And right, 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 right. You right. could say that that's what the John's over into Afghanistan and Iraq were really about. It was just something to do. Just give us something to do instead of, well, I mean, it took us, took us 10 years to get Bin Laden after we went to Afghanistan. And, you know, mm. what, what really has changed there as well. Now we're back to yeah. square one in Afghanistan 20 years later. Yeah. And so, like, there's, I mean, there's still going to be a whole lot of more fallout on a wider scale and, and discourse and all the think pieces to be determined yeah. by history. But yeah. from from in the moment for that film, that's also, a, I think, a pretty resonant thing, too. So uh, I think very, very apt that you brought that up for sure. And it certainly touches on those things. Yeah. And on the on the same theme, kind of like I, I definitely feel like this is the idealized version of what a billionaire could be. Thomas Wayne is a. He's a doctor, but he leaves the running of the company to, you know, better men than me because I don't want to deal with the finances or the, the struggles of running a company right, or whatever. Right. I just want to save lives. And then Bruce Wayne is, I'm a billionaire and I have all this money, but I'm only like the jerk billionaire whenever it benefits me. Like when he has to make a scene to kick everyone out of the, the house when he knows that a fight's about to go down or when he... Yeah intentionally plays up his persona like buying the hotel and swimming with the models in the pool to throw people um, off the idea to that throw he could people be... off the scent so he's a yeah. he's a billionaire but he's a good billionaire because he's using it to fight crime and everything and like i feel like batman's always been the character where people are like well if you could be a superhero who would you be and a lot of times people are like oh batman because like you could actually be batman like it's the same thing where people are like oh yeah you can be a billionaire just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and like sometimes yes but a lot of times the only reason they have that is because of you know generational wealth generational wealth is. or bruce, labor bruce exploitation. Wayne is a billionaire bruce wayne is a billionaire because his father was a billionaire you know like yeah so it's it's always kind of been linked with america in that way i really like the quote like he's uh, it's a very american superhero obviously but i like the yeah the quote from the the book where it says superman began as a socialist but batman was the ultimate capitalist hero Mm -hmm. because like his all his gadgets and everything like his money he did that like he you know money buys power money buys everything so all of that is combined. Everything's related. Everything, all that fun stuff. Yeah, and we'll definitely touch on, on more. Wade and a little bit into the politics of the trilogy as we as we go along. Especially but, with Dark Knight Rises. Oh, I'm sure. yeah. As and so, I'm, I'm trying to save some of the the talk of that for when we get there because I mean, there's so many ridiculous things around that movie. But I think it is apt to. To mention that here with especially i think nolan acknowledges that some of that's there it informed the making of the films at the very least but there's also the the thing he says in the book where maybe he doesn't put it in there explicitly because he says you can't use narrative to tell people what to think it never works so right yeah yeah, yeah. You know, i think that idea that concept he's never going to come out and say like what his politics are that's not that's certainly not, after reading that whole book, it's definitely not who he is. Um, he likes to play things close to the chest. Um, 
even though he strikes me as an aggressively centrist, maybe slightly, maybe slightly, ever so slightly, like right-leaning, but very, very much a center kind of guy. But if there's yeah. an idea he's trying to communicate, he's not going to smash you over the head of it. I haven't seen Don't Look Up, but you know, I read some of the, the reviews of it. It's, it's definitely not going to be something uh, as... You didn't miss much. ...as direct <laughs> <laughs> as that uh, at all. So you have to really be on your toes to kind of see what underlying ideas he might be trying to put in there about what he thinks of some things like, yeah, in the dark Knight rises, he took the occupier, or actually it was occupy wall street stuff happened while he was making it. And he yeah, just kind of took that so energy yeah. of the fallout yeah. from the financial crisis. And that's kind of was his, his take on it. We'll get there like obviously, but yeah, something like that. But this is this trilogy, the Batman films, really give him an opportunity to maybe comment on, not necessarily comment, but put some ideas into the idea of America and what what the U.S. was going through at that time, ever so subtly mm-hmm. in there. So yeah, man, we're hitting there. We're we're gonna be branded uh, by somebody talking all the politics. Get politics out of my movies. <laughs> all movies are politics oh that's a whole nother podcast that we are not get ready to have <laughs> my honors teacher in high school would be so proud of me everything is related oh yes oh yes <laughs> uh, i remember the first one of my first classes at tcu the, the media overview with punch shaw yes punch shaw ever listens to this shout out to you punch man he, he was huge on talking about the Dark Knight because that was my first uh, semester at TCU, the fall of 2008. He got to talk to you about the Dark Knight quite a bit. He was like, it's obviously like a very, very obvious commentary on surveillance. And at the time, I was like, no, psh, you know, we can't. Of course not. That would never happen. It's, it's just in the movie because it's a thing to put in it. But I, I was I was wrong. There's obviously something there. But to try and pull us out of the absolute nosedive we're taking everything to <laughs> to wrap up our discussion i kind of forgot that the entire final act of the movie takes place on bruce's birthday lest we forget you know it's his birthday party then his house gets burned down then he has to go save the city yeah what a birthday gift you yeah. know, house burned down <laughs> and then from other couple other known connections i i tried to pull out of thin air but like with that first batman scene where we see the character fully for the first time when he's interrupting the drug shipment at the docks. He kind of took some lessons from Walter Finch and insomnia kind of skittering on the edges of the frame to be that elusive, scary (laughs) figure. And then maybe I invented a call ahead to Oppenheimer with Thomas Wayne being kind of a socially conscious, extremely wealthy person and, and Bruce as well. But in the little bits I've read of Oppenheimer so far, his father was extreme, like built an extremely prosperous business. And they were very, very wealthy by the standards of the time. But contemporary accounts of Robert Oppenheimer growing up were that he was pretty down to earth and not not a spoiled rich kid. He was quite level headed and didn't act like he was above it all. So, yeah, yeah, something to keep in mind. That's me just trying to to tie things into the the current time. Anyway. 
<laughs> but and and Killian Murphy too. He was great. Love that guy. Man, he was one of the standouts I here. Want more. That's that was one yeah. of my notes here. This was um let me look up when this movie came out. Maybe it was the same year. Are you are you gonna talk about Red Eye? Hell yeah, I'm talking about Red Eye. Because I'm pretty sure it yeah, was the same year. Which I did see that in the theaters. He's I did so not good. see Pat Pimpy Kids. Yeah, that was a scary movie for me. Like I didn't do thrillers or something like that too much at the time, but I primarily saw Red Eye in the theater because Colby Donaldson was supposed to be in it and he was from my neck of the woods where he was from and actually worked for oh, cool. my best friend's dad and I actually got to like in the auto shop and I got to meet him working in his workshop while Survivor was on. Anyway, that's the reason I saw that movie oh, nice. and Killian Murphy was <laughs> in it and he was terrifying. He's so good. I love that. that movie has like no subtlety. His name is Jackson Ripner in that movie. Yes. Like, come on. That's a Wes Craven. It's a Wes Craven movie, movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's so good. I remember I saw that in the theater for sure. Cause I remember mm-hmm. I was like, let's go see this. This looks fun. And my parents were like, mm, I don't know. They had fun. It was good. But no, he was in this and he was in Batman Begins the same year. Kind of doing the same type of character in both. And this is what I mean when I say like the comic bookiness of it too is that's the villain that you would play in like an Arkham Asylum game, you know? Yeah. Like he, I don't know, and he's doing so well with it. Like it's, so, I, I wanted more screen time from him. I would like a whole movie where like that's just the main antagonist. I'm sure there's a animated movie of that somewhere, but that was really cool. I liked his performance in this a lot. I feel like he needs to, I've never seen Peaky Blinders. Uh, my brother's seen it. He's told me it's really good. I, I, I really want to see it now. Um, More than ever. I mean, it's been on the list for a while. And, <laughs> he's great in every other Nolan movie that I've seen him in. And in, uh, oh, what was that one? I can't remember. He's he's pretty much anything that he's been in, I've enjoyed. The next so. thing we're going to do is a, a Killian Murphy cast, obviously. Killian cast. There we go. Yeah. Killing it. No, no, that's not like no. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna stop right there. <laughs> um let me see. The only other big note that I had, which touches on a thing that we've talked about a lot, is the criticism that all of Nolan's movies are cold and emotionless and everything. And uh False. we've said before, like <laughs> if you know where to look, it's not true. And then especially once we get to stuff like Interstellar and Dunkirk, like very emotional movies. But in the Nolan Variations book, shown notes that uh, what Nolan finds emotional in Interstellar is the same thing he found emotional in Memento, Batman Begins, Inception, and The Dark Knight Rises, which is abandonment. Right. And so that, once I read that and kind of put that into, move the pieces around together, I was like, because yeah, how could you draw all of those together? And yeah, it's true. That is a huge huge theme you could probably apply that to pretty much all of his works really and his exploration of that that theme and you know maybe that goes back to the the whole london america thing as a kid or maybe just you know everyone's got a fear of abandonment i feel like uh Mm -hmm. so that's a big theme for this movie yeah that we're talking about tonight but yeah like it's the there's a common thread there too if you know where to if you can find it out amidst all of the you know you can look at all the technical prowess all day long but the actual emotion stuff it it is there and then once the they mentioned the 
abandonment stuff clearly you can see yeah yeah and i also i really feel the feels and the scene after the wayne's funeral where bruce mm-hmm. kid bruce is telling alfred like it was my fault if i just been oh man yeah if that, i hadn't been scared yeah if i hadn't been scared they'd still be here and oof. yeah man that that one cut deep so yeah no emotion fully cold yeah right come on have a heart people Ah, oh, those cold cynical hearts everyone let's go <laughs> <laughs> but are we to the letterbox ones now are we to the letterbox reviews we've done it again i believe so yeah we can do that hooray well, i'll go first since we my name's the first one on the notes <laughs> the one i found is by user named hunter at h strawberry and hunter writes Batman should have tossed King Joffrey off that balcony. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he shouldn't have true. been part of his bat suit. Get yeah. <laughs> Throw him <laughs> off instead. <laughs> Mine is kind of the same. Mine is from Sean Fennessy at The Ringer. And he says, this film cast Tom Wilkinson as an Italian-American crime figure named Carmine Falcone. <laughs> and I don't know if that's like making fun of like the the craziness of that name or whatever but it is it is from the comic book it is uh accurate yeah. but yeah that's true he, and then i i never really put together it i was like oh yeah tom wilkinson the british or the english uh actor yeah i mean does he does do uh pretty good and he's uh, good it's a pretty good yeah. italian dialect it's pretty good yeah. Uh, yeah yeah i believe it mm-hmm. i pulled one more just because i couldn't help myself uh, <laughs> as a as a nod to Joel Schumacher, user Diamond Bolt oh at Diamond Bolt says, instead of turning him into a demon, the fear gas should have given Batman suit nipples. <laughs> there you go. Yep, and a Batman nipples credit card. That suit. And a Batman credit card. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, that, that's always fun. Man, love letterboxed. Letterboxd, please sponsor us. That's the true dream here. That's what we that's what we're really put us going on for. Your podcast. Yeah, put us up in the feed there. Anyway, um, now that we've shamelessly begged, where can people find us, Jake? You can find us over at Friends at Dusk Pod on Instagram and just Friends at Dusk on Twitter. You can email us at friends at duskpod at gmail.com. And you can find me over at uh, Instagram and Twitter at jkharris4. And you can check out all of my letterbox reviews over there at 808jake underscore. And I am on Instagram at marshall.doig, Twitter at marshalldoig, and letterboxd at mdoig. We write some great reviews, believe me. You don't know what you're missing. Sensational. <laughs> Otherwise, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can rate. And if you want to, you can support us through our Anchor page. And you can find a list of all the resources and stuff we mentioned here in the show notes and links. Uh, And next time, we are going to be discussing influences on the prestige. Yes, we get there. What a wonderful film that is. I love that movie. More Christian Bale. Yes. But we'll get there. 
when it is time. The time is not now. Right it'll now, be in the new year. It'll be in the new year. 2023. But for now, it's time for us to wrap it up. That'll do it. And we'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Bye.